You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. All my crevices are moist! Majesty was a stripling like Horus, the youth in Chemis. His beauty was like the protector of his father. He seemed like the god himself. The army rejoiced because of love for him, and he repeated the circuit of his might like the son of Newt and all the princes and all the great ones. Behold, he did a thing which gave him pleasure upon the highlands of the Memphite gnome, upon its southern and northern road, shooting at a target with copper bolts, hunting lions, and the small game of the desert coursing in his chariot, his horses being swifter than the wind, together with two of his followers, while not a soul knew it. Now, when his hour came for giving rest to his followers, it was always at the sanctuary of Horus in the horizon, in the desert, Sekhmet presiding over the mountain, the splendid place of the beginning of time, opposite the lords of Babylon, the sacred road of the gods to the western necropolis." Now the very great statue of Capere rests in this place, the great in power, the splendid in strength, upon which the shadow of Ra tarries. One of those days it came to pass that the king's son Tothmes came, coursing at the time of midday, and he rested in the shadow of this great god. Sleep seized him at the hour when the sun was in its zenith, and he found the majesty of this revered god speaking with his own mouth, as a father speaks with his son, saying, Behold thou me, my son, Tothmes, I am thy father, Horus of the horizon, Kepari Ra Atum. I will give to thee my kingdom upon earth at the head of the living. Thou shalt wear the white crown and the red crown upon the throne of Geb, the hereditary prince. The land shall be thine, in its length and in its breadth, that which the eye of the All-Lord shines upon." The food of the two lands shall be thine, the great tribute of all countries, the duration of a long period of years. My face is directed to you, my heart is to you. Thou shalt be to me the protector of my affairs, because I am ailing in all my limbs. The sands of the sanctuary upon which I am have reached me. Turn to me in order to do what I desire. I know that thou art my son, 
my protector, behold, I am with thee, I am thy leader. When he finished this speech, the king's son awoke, hearing this, he understood the words of the God, and he put them in his heart. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the brand new season! We are back from summer break, in the flesh. We're back. We've had a really great time digging into some really fascinating ancient mysteries. This whole season is kind of just one big rabbit hole, and we're so excited to be traveling to different places in the ancient world. And we're starting off with a bang, aren't we? (laughs) Oh, we are starting off with a real bang. I don't know that I wanted to do this one as the very first episode that we did. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a rabbit hole all on its own and it's it's a little bit of a controversial topic and um hopefully we handle it well, but I was I was going to ease into it and Jen insisted that we put this one first. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. There's a reason we're putting this one first. So follow us. This episode is structured in a certain way and we want to take you on a little bit of a journey. Bear with us. There's a reason that this is our first episode and get with us to the end because we have so much to tell you. We haven't even at this recording, we haven't decided on all of our topics for the season yet. So some of them are going to be a surprise to present me and present me. So far, I have written one episode for this season. I have another one to write this weekend. And then I am off to Athens for a month. And while I'm there, I will be recording one of our special guest episodes. When this drops, Jen will still be in Athens, I believe. Yeah, so we don't we don't know what we're even doing for the rest of this season. I will say that this is a a season about mysteries. There are a lot of very legitimate mysteries. Those are mostly what we're going to cover. I don't know exactly what we're going to cover, but I will say that I'm probably not going to do any more that are like real pseudo archaeology mysteries. This is the one that I decided to do that is that. So come and join us on this extremely wild ride. Um, Hopefully this will keep you entertained. It's going to be long. We decided to keep it to one episode for various storytelling reasons. So um, shall we? (laughs) We shall. Also, you guys missed us. You know you missed us. You're so happy we have a supersized episode. Admit it. It's going to be one of those very bingeable road trip episodes. So that passage that I just read you at the beginning of this is from the Dream Stele, a stele installed between the paws of the Great Sphinx of Giza that lives on the high desert Giza Plateau alongside the Great Pyramids. The Dream Stele tells the story of an Egyptian prince, Tutmos IV. While hunting in his chariot on the high plateau, he comes upon the Sphinx buried up to its neck in sand. He falls asleep in the shadow of the Sphinx, and the Sphinx speaks to him. The sands of the sanctuary have reached me. Unbury me, for I am sick in all my limbs. If you do this thing, I will make you pharaoh. And so Tutmos woke, and he did as the Sphinx asked. And soon after, his brother died, and Tutmos was made pharaoh. I mean, the Sphinx kept its promise, right? It did. So the Sphinx is the oldest monumental structure in ancient Egypt. Well, statue, not structure. This is true, guys. I'm also recording this in the heat wave, so everything is sticky. (laughs) You're drinking something to keep you cool, though, aren't you, Jen? Yeah, maybe too quickly. (laughs) What are you drinking in honor of this episode? Well, Jen, (laughs) in solidarity with the pyramid builders, I am drinking beer. (laughs) I'm not a massive 
beer fan, but it is blackberry season here in the UK. So I am drinking wine with blackberries at the bottom of my glass because then there'll be blueberries, And that's my favorite. The blackberries literally came from my garden. Well, mine is the blue moon. I wouldn't say that that is necessarily what the pyramids builders drank, but it is delicious. So let's try this take two. The Sphinx is the oldest monumental statue in ancient Egypt. Yes. Score. Carved from the very living bedrock of the Giza Plateau from one single enormous block of limestone. It's 240 feet long and 60 feet high. It sits in a man-made U-shaped enclosure dug out of the rock with the dream stele between its paws. The dream stele is not original to the Sphinx. It was installed there in 1401 BC, the year Tutmos's reign began. Most Egyptologists believe that the stele was carved from a door lintel scavenged from Khafre's Valley Temple, one of the two small temples that sit at the Sphinx's feet. Both of these were probably ruins, over a thousand years old by the time Tutmos came along. Most scholars believe that the Sphinx and the temples are roughly the same age as the pyramids and the other monuments on the Giza Plateau. But there's a fringe theory that suggests the Sphinx and its temples are much, much older. Today, we're going to delve into the mystery of the Sphinx and take a look at this fringe theory conceived by cowboy archaeologists, rebels in a dangerous time, perhaps in a drug-induced fever dream, or maybe it was just Jen on edibles, that states that the Sphinx is in fact, is in fact 10,000 years old. This, this is the theory? Put your tinfoil hats firmly on your heads and let's go. <laughs> so, before we delve into this spectacularly fringe theory, let's take a look at the accepted view of the Sphinx's age and how archaeologists determine that age. So according to the accepted view, the Sphinx dates to the reign of the pharaoh Khafre, which spanned between 2558 and 2532 BC approximately. Even the dates of his reign are a bit fuzzy. Khafre was the son of the pharaoh Khufu, builder of the Great Pyramid. The pyramid complex at Giza, as we know it today, was built in several phases over at least two generations, maybe more, I'm not 100% sure. It was started by the pharaoh Khufu, who built the Great Pyramid, plus the three smaller pyramids believed to belong to his wives, at some point between 2589 and 2566 BC. Khafre, the son of Khufu, came along afterward, between 2558 and 2532 BC. There was an older brother, Jedefre, between them, and I just love that name. It is fun to say, Jedefre. I really struggle <laughs> saying it because it's not the way it's spelt, and that really throws me. Jedefre. There's a, there's a D at the front. A silent D, correct. A silent D, and that throws me every time. Jedefre. Can't. It's a silent D. It's fine. It's just, it's just getting my eyes around it. Sometimes it's difficult. Khafre built the second tallest of the three pyramids. He built the Sphinx, allegedly, the Sphinx in the Valley Temples, two temples at the Sphinx's feet, and a causeway going from the complex to the Nile River. So according to, you know, the established view, the Sphinx was built by Khafre at the same time as the second largest pyramid, making it approximately 4,500 years old. The Sphinx is, however, difficult to date. There is no organic material involved in the Sphinx's original construction. 
that can be used in carbon dating. There are no inscriptions on the Sphinx that might give us a clue as to who built it, except for that of Thutmose IV, who encountered the Sphinx when it was already more than a thousand years old and buried up to its neck in sand. It's not mentioned anywhere in the ancient documents from Khafre's time. The reason many Egyptologists believe that the Sphinx dates to the time of Khafre has to do with its context within the pyramid complex. The way that certain features are oriented around it leads archaeologists to draw conclusions about which features were built first. For instance, the causeway passes right by the Sphinx enclosure, both of them oriented in the same direction, leading archaeologists to believe they were built at roughly the same time as part of the same plan. And I realize I'm vastly oversimplifying here. There are a lot of other instances of things kind of oriented around the Sphinx that make it look like it was built at the same time as those things, or perhaps a little bit earlier or later than certain things. However, there are some legitimate mysteries surrounding the Sphinx, and the idea that Khafre built the Sphinx is not unchallenged even by established archaeologists. That's because there are still some gaps in the historical record that leave room for alternate theories to arise. For instance, one gap is that the Sphinx is not mentioned in any ancient contemporary documentation about Khafre's reign and what he built. It's just not mentioned anywhere. We don't even know what the ancient Egyptians called the Sphinx at the time it was supposedly built. The name Sphinx was given to it by the ancient Greeks thousands of years later, and that's because they thought it resembled a different creature from their own mythology. A being with the head of a woman, the body of a lion, and the wings of a bird. The Great Sphinx of Giza is a different animal entirely. It has a man's head and no wings. Yeah, that Sphinx was the Sphinx that terrorized Thebes. We talked about Thebes a lot last season. Thutmose IV in the Dream Stele calls the Sphinx Horus of the Horizon and Kapari Ra Atum, which is a name that encompasses three different solar deities, the morning sun, the midday sun, and the evening sun. So he's aligning the Sphinx with solar deities, but this is supposedly a thousand years after the Sphinx was built. While records about Tutmos's rule are thin on the ground, we do know that he wasn't his father's first choice for heir. He came to rule only after his older brother died. Some scholars suspect he usurped the brother, maybe had him killed, and then resurrected and deified the Sphinx, aligning it with sun gods to justify his rule. What did people call the Sphinx at the time it was supposedly built? Did they worship it as a sun god during Khafre's time? We don't know. Archaeologists note that the two temples, the Sphinx Temple and the Valley Temple, associated with the Sphinx, were started but not completed, suggesting that the cult of the Sphinx, if there was one, never got off the ground. That may be one explanation for why there's no documentation for it. It never became a religious symbol, except maybe later when Tutmos resurrected the statue and possibly deified it to justify his own rule. I mean, that. Sounds like a thing someone would do. So, most archaeologists will admit that the Sphinx is shrouded in mystery, and there are some scholars who challenge the prevailing theories about who built the Sphinx and when. Some have proposed that the Sphinx was actually built by Khufu, roughly a few decades earlier, and there are some who think maybe it was built by Jedifre, the older brother of Khafre, who ruled before him which would, again, make the Sphinx maybe five or ten years older, maybe more, depending on when in Khafre's reign the Sphinx was actually built. And the dates here are fuzzy, but essentially it's saying it's within kind of two generations, right? It's within a few decades. These are challenges to the mainstream view, but they are also considered, you know, legitimate theories. They're not fringe tinfoil hat theories. 
So there are established archaeologists willing to believe that the Sphinx is actually older than the prevailing view by a few decades. But are those theories extreme enough for us today? No, they are not. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's time. It's time to break out the tinfoil hats and explore this wild theory that completely explodes the prevailing wisdom and asserts that the Sphinx is, in fact, 10,000 years old or maybe even older. Look out. Watch out, everybody. (laughs) So. I mean. I think I'm going to win you over with this, Jen. I don't think so. Like, listen, I like a lot of weird nonsense, but this, my nonsense meter is up here right now. But please, show your work. Oh, I'm going to show my work. (laughs) Just you wait. (laughs) So, the name of this wild theory is called the Sphinx Water Erosion Theory. Its main initial proponent was John Anthony West, an alternative Egyptologist, quote-unquote, writer and author. West did not have an advanced degree in Egyptology, shocking no one. <laughs> I lo- This is one of my favorite parts, is John Anthony West's background. His background was a, as a Manhattan copywriter. Guess who else is a Manhattan copywriter in her day job? <laughs> <laughs> Me. <laughs> I'm a Manhattan copywriter. I am not qualified. I mean, I guess I'm a Brooklyn copywriter. I've had clients in Manhattan. I wrote copy in Manhattan. <laughs> Jenny, this is sounding a lot like us in our podcast. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> this is maybe why no one should listen to us talk about history. <laughs> and a science fiction writer. I love that. <laughs> He's also a science fiction writer who won honorable mention for a Hugo Award back in 1962. And West died in 2018. I'm just going to stop for a minute and tell you how I feel about science fiction writers who have a cult following. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. I know Tom Cruise might come after you. Anyway, so according to the history of this theory, West encountered the idea that the Sphinx was 10,000 years old in the writings of another alternative Egyptologist, quote-unquote. I'm probably going to mispronounce this name. René Adolphe Schwaller de Lubix, and there's going to be more on him later. For now, what I'm going to tell you is that West became intrigued by de Lubix's idea that the Sphinx was far older than the archaeologist said, and that the erosion on the Sphinx's body was caused by water, not wind or sand. Delubix thought it was caused by Nile flooding. West was so intrigued, he tried to get the Egyptology community interested in this theory. But of course, no self-respecting archaeologist would listen to West's ideas. So it took West about 10 years to find a scholar who would give his ideas a shot. Dr. Robert Schock, a professor at Boston University. Robert Schock was a legitimate academic with advanced degrees. The thing was, he wasn't an archaeologist. He was a geologist, one who specialized in erosion patterns on rocks. I mean, that is probably the right person to go to for this stuff, right? I guess, yeah. I mean, one of the things is he wasn't too tied to any establishment theories about Egyptology. Like, he was just looking at the geology. Yeah, and you're going to someone who specializes in erosion. So if your idea is like, well, the erosion tells us how old this is, this would be a logical step, right? Yeah. So Shock and West started working together to further develop West's ideas about the Sphinx. They visited the monument together, where Shock examined the weathering on the Sphinx and its enclosure close up. He determined that the weathering on the rock was unequivocally water, rainwater, not Nile flooding. He believed that the weathering on the Sphinx could only be caused by exposure to thousands of years of heavy rainfall. The last time that much rain fell on the Giza Plateau was roughly 10,000 years ago. So the Sphinx would have to be 10,000 years old to have this weathering on its body. Well, 
I, no, I'm not sure. Okay, keep talking to me because I have questions. I think I'm going to come at all those questions from multiple angles before the end of this, Jen. I just, I just predict that. But let's keep going. I want to see where this goes. Okay. So, Shock and West went public with their ideas in 1992, when Shock gave a presentation at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The presentation was set up like a back and forth, with Shock presenting his alternative Egyptology ideas, quote-unquote, and an experienced Egyptologist, Dr. Mark Lehner, a leading expert on the Sphinx, discussing the established view. The conversation got spicy. So spicy, I bet. So spicy. According to a New York Times article published at the time, quote, The exchange was to last an hour, but it spilled over into a news conference and then a hallway confrontation in which voices were raised and words skated on the icy edge of scientific politeness. <gasps> Scandal! Archaeologists called Shock's ideas pseudoscience, which is definitely fighting words, in the halls of academia. In the halls <laughs> of academia? In the halls of this podcast? And just to be clear, neither Jen nor I have have advanced degrees. We both have bachelor's degrees, and that is it. <laughs> we both have bachelor's degrees in the same thing. English writing and speech and theater. That's what our degrees are in, guys. And I happen to be a Manhattan copywriter who wants to write, I would say, you know, romance and fantasy. I don't think that's more legit than science fiction. <laughs> I'm a London-based marketer and writer who also wants to write some romance, maybe some some fantasy. I'm not sure. We're about as qualified as John Anthony West. <laughs> we really are. And that's scary because we are not qualified for this. <laughs> anyway, but the press loves a good pseudoscientific theory. Think about it. You've seen a lot of them. The press seized on the idea, and suddenly the Sphinx water erosion theory was all the rage, much to the chagrin of Egyptologists. A documentary was released in 1993, The Mystery of the Sphinx, which features shock, west, footage from the fateful conference that changed the course of Egyptology. Charlton Heston was narrating. For some reason. <laughs> For some reason, and that alone makes me discredit it. I don't think that is the one thing that should discredit this, this documentary for you, but okay. <laughs> there are also lots of animated sequences of how stone gets eroded and more. And we'll get into that more later, too. So, archaeologists issued rebuttals. Shock and West issued rebuttals to the rebuttals. So much butting. And those butts were met with rebuttals to the rebuttals of the rebuttals. The academic papers flew furiously back and forth between the two camps for the next 30 years. Which brings us to where we are today. That's right. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. 
But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So what I'm going to do here, because this is, this is very complicated, what I'm going to do is present the general core theory of how the water erosion hypothesis works, plus some side theories that support the main conclusion. There are a lot of those, and I don't have time to delve into everything that has been written about this. This has been going on for 30 years. And then I'm also going to address how archaeologists, established archaeologists, respond to these theories. And again, there are lots of responses. There's 30 years of history here. This, some of this is very complicated and expert level, and I am but one person... One Manhattan copywriter without an advanced degree in Egyptology. And without a Hugo Award nomination or shortlisting. (laughs) Not even a Hugo Award nomination to my name. I am less qualified to talk about this than John Anthony West. But here I am. You know, Jen and I talked about having an expert on to talk about this with us, but I really wanted to do it myself. I really was just like, no, I want to pick through this myself and see how I can come to understand it. And so... I am going to be your layperson guide taking you on this possibly misinformed journey with me. Strap in, kiddos. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so the most significant core evidence for the water erosion hypothesis involves the erosion pattern visible on the Sphinx and on the Sphinx enclosure. The Sphinx is carved out of a single block of limestone, and it rests in an enclosure, a sort of U-shaped empty swimming pool carved out of the bedrock. The enclosure used to have sides that were straight up and down, allegedly, but now those sides are heavily weathered, like the body of the Sphinx itself. The limestone that the Sphinx and enclosure are both carved from is heavily weathered. The stone is known to be bad quality limestone, and it's kind of like a layer cake, right? It's got softer and harder layers within the rock, and those layers all weather differently. And yeah, A layer cake is really great, right? Because when you make a layer cake, you've got your layers that are your your lovely, soft, delicious cake. And then you've got your buttercream in between. Otherwise, it's going to be very dry. And then you've got your cake again. And then you've got buttercream and maybe jam or whatever you have in between. So they're all going to weather differently based on which layer you're looking at and how hard that is packed. If you leave your layer cake out in the sun and the wind and the rain for 10,000 years, it's, it's going to weather differently. And still maybe be delicious. Now I want to lick the Sphinx. Can we just go and lick the Sphinx? <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be the pull quote. <laughs> mm. 
Sphinx cake. Sphinxy layer cakey goodness. Moving on. <laughs> I remember watching the original 1993 documentary, The Mystery of the Sphinx, when I was a kid. I vividly remember seeing animated depictions of how stone gets weathered from wind and sand versus rainwater. They, like, made cartoons of this. So, with wind and sand weathering against layers of limestone, like the Sphinx has, what you get is horizontal weathering, with the soft layers weathered back in the stone further and the harder layers sticking out. There are lots of sharp edges and horizontal lines with this type of weathering. With weathering due to heavy rainfall, what you get is soft, undulating layers of weathering and long, vertical cracks and fissures where the rain has carved out channels and joints and weak spots between the rocks. Soft stone weathered this way looks kind of like a melted layer cake. Mmm, it's a cake. Can you imagine if one of those, like, layers was like a marshmallow buttercream? What if it's chocolate? But chocolate and then a marshmallow buttercream. I'm loving it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> This is mostly about cake now. We've <laughs> we need to focus. Anyway, that is exactly the kind of weathering you see on the Sphinx and its enclosure. So remember how the writer who inspired John Anthony West in the first place, Delubix, thought that the water erosion was caused by Nile flooding? Shock disagreed. He felt this weathering could only be caused by rainfall, thousands of years of rainfall. Nile flooding would cause the Sphinx enclosure to be hollowed out from the bottom, with the top parts jutting out over the heavily eroded bottom parts. But the opposite is true. What we see is that the top of the enclosure is more heavily eroded than the bottom, suggesting that it took the brunt of the force of that rainfall over the centuries and millennia. Shock and West took their geographical observations to the lab, where their findings were checked against weather patterns in the area over the past few millennia. What came back was astonishing. Rain in high enough volumes to cause the erosion on the Sphinx had not been seen in that area for over 10,000 years. That meant that the Sphinx and the enclosure it sat in had to be 10,000 years old, carved, perhaps, at the very end of the last ice age. So, Shock has gone back and forth about that figure, 10,000 years, and where he has more or less come down on, as far as I know, is the more conservative end of this estimation, suggesting the Sphinx was probably carved between 5,000 and 7,000 BC. I've seen other estimations that based on this climatology data, the Sphinx could date to the end of the last ice age, as far back as around 11,500 BC. This, of course, would completely rewrite how we see ancient history and our sense of how we evolved as a species. What do you think, Jen? Is this a tinfoil hat theory? Or are you convinced at this point? I am not convinced at this point. Jen's a tough audience. <laughs> it's a tough sell. You know what it is? I'm incredibly gullible and I've been fooled so many times. So I am ready right now for everything that you're going to throw at me. I'm going to fight it because I am usually the one who goes, really? And this is the first time Jenny like presented me with something where I was like, wait a minute. We'll see. I mean, we'll see if you're convinced by the end of this. The water erosion pattern on the Sphinx's body is the core argument for this theory, but over the past three decades, Shock and West have also built up other side arguments that support their case. And like I said, we don't have time to go all into all of it. So we're going to look at some of the main ones, and then we'll look at some of the main rebuttals to these. Some of the intriguing questions, or perhaps egregious pseudo-archaeological brain farts, depending on your perspective, include... The head of the Sphinx. Who is it supposed to be anyway? Does it really look like Khafra? 
Who else could it be? The Valiant Sphinx temples. Were they built at the same time as the Sphinx? Are we sure? How do we know? Repairs done to the Sphinx over the years. When do the oldest repairs date to? What clues can they tell us about when the Sphinx was built? And finally, documentation. Is it true that the Sphinx isn't mentioned anywhere in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs or other sources? Is it? So, (laughs) let's start by zeroing in on the Sphinx's head. Established archaeologists, for the most part, believe that it was Khafre who built the Sphinx. One thing I see claimed from time to time is that the head of the Sphinx looks like Khafre. He just looks like Khafre. Look at it. Look at that face. It's Khafre. I struggle with this. As someone with possibly a little light face blindness, I might not recognize you if you're in a context that I usually don't see you in or if you had just had a haircut or something. The only way she knows me is I have not changed my hair color in the entirety of our friendship. That's true. If you did change your hair color, I wouldn't know it was you. I have a hard time telling what the Sphinx looks like anyway, or who the Sphinx looks like anyway. But it's especially hard with the Sphinx in particular because its face is very weathered. It's hard to tell who it was supposed to look like to begin with. Even if you're not like me and you recognize people in real life, I don't know. In the documentary The Mystery of the Sphinx, and I actually did rewatch this documentary recently to write this episode, you're welcome. And I was surprised how much I thought Khafre actually did look like the Sphinx. When I watched this in middle school, I did not think that. I don't know. I don't know what people look like. Don't look at me. Anyway, I'm not looking at her because she wouldn't be able to recognize me anyway. I've got my hair tied up. But anyway. (laughs) Who are you? I mean, that's 100% not how face blindness works. But anyway, back to this documentary. In the documentary, Shock and West bring on a forensic artist who draws sketches of criminals to help solve crime. He analyzed the Sphinx's facial features based on things like the corner of the eye and its angle to the chin, etc., and compared it to a known statue of Khafre. According to the forensic artist, the angles were all quite different. The Sphinx just wasn't a match. This identification would not stand up in court. And I just... I have to stop for a minute because, like, I know this is from 1993, but this identification would not stand up in court for a lot of reasons. Like, science has moved on a lot. We can, like, tell a lot of things. I mean, face angles are the same regardless of if it's 1993 or not. Yeah, yeah. The angles and stuff are the same, but, like, they can do scans. They can create different 3D models. Like, they would be able to match it on different things. I'm a true crime nerd. We all know this. They would be able to make a better model between the two. Probably more definitive that they are not the same. But anyway, all I'm saying is this would not stand up in any court. Not in 2022. I haven't seen an established view of this that matched Coffrey's face to the Sphinx and found a positive identification. I'm not saying it's not out there. I just haven't seen it. I mean, I'm pretty sure the amount of true crime I've watched, I could tell you. She's more (laughs) qualified than me. I am but one single Manhattan copywriter. (laughs) I am but one nerd who likes a lot of true crime and mythology. I don't have any Hugo nominations at all. (laughs) I have no credibility here. (laughs) Look, the mythology is my Hugo nomination, okay? (laughs) The true crime is my specialty. That qualifies you. Established archaeologists would dispute this, but I can see how it would be difficult to say who exactly the Sphinx looks like, given the weathering. Some archaeologists have even said it looks more like Jedifrey or Khufu. Although the only statue we have for comparisons to Khufu is two inches tall. It's very wee. Just the irony, you guys. It's wee. That was, that was what size he was. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if that was the size he was, he didn't need a pyramid that big, right? 
No, that's exactly why he needed a pyramid that big. <laughs> it's like having a big truck now. He was compensating. <laughs> Archaeologists also point out that, okay, let's say it's not Khafre. Let's say it's Khufu or Jedefre or somebody else who is not Khafre. But it has to be somebody from the old kingdom at least, right? Because even if you don't agree that the Sphinx looks like any of those guys, he's got a pharaonic headdress on. The Sphinx's headdress is a traditional Nemes headdress, which is featured in depictions of Egyptian pharaohs going all the way back to 3100 BC, which was the time of the first pharaonic dynasty. 3100 BC is old, but it isn't like 5000 to 7000 BC. It's not going to rewrite our entire history. So if the Sphinx has that headdress, it can't be 10,000 years old, right? Okay, so Shock and West have a rebuttal to this too. Hear me out. What if the Sphinx's head used to be something totally different and it was recarved later to look like a pharaoh? Think about it. Feel some straws being grasped at here. Think about it. There's some straws in the air being real grasped at right now. One thing Shock and Wes noticed when they visited the Sphinx was this. The Sphinx's head is wildly out of proportion to its body. And, okay, I'm giving them this. That is weird. The ancient Egyptians definitely understood proportion. They were master sculptors. You would think that they'd make the head proportionate to the body of the Sphinx, especially as this was such an important monument, representing a pharaoh, right? Right, why is it such a big body and such a little pinhead? Why? Explain. This is a point I can get behind, okay? In the documentary, Mystery of the Sphinx, narrated by Charlton Heston, Shock and West discuss an alternate theory, that the head of the Sphinx was originally the head of a lion, much larger and more in proportion to the body. Then, in Old Kingdom times, the head was recarved in the shape of the head of a pharaoh, Khafre, or maybe Khufu, or Jedifre. One piece of evidence Shock cites for this is that the head of the Sphinx, while very weathered and damaged, is not as weathered as the rest of the body. Perhaps that's because it's not as old, or wasn't in that shape as long as the rest of the body. Hmm? Hmm? Okay, look. I'm giving them that. That I can get behind a little bit. I'm just going to add a little bit of a rebuttal to this. We rebut. Ooh, let's rebut. <laughs> Some geologists rebut this, saying that the reason the Sphinx's face isn't as weathered as the body is that the limestone of the head is actually harder than the limestone of the body, so it's more resistant to erosion. I can agree with that, too. Other geologists have suggested that the head of the Sphinx is a yardang, which is a jutting rock formation that the Egyptians carved to look like a head. Maybe it's the size it is because that jutting rock formation just didn't have any more stone to it. Like, they didn't have enough stone to make it proportionate. Right? They didn't have that much stone to work with. I can agree with that, too. Like, I'm, I'm here for that. Those are some light rebuttals. Most of the rebuttals are in a different section, but that one is one I put here because it was just, you know, that's where it went. I can't explain the things I do. That's, that's left for future historians to figure out. <laughs> Jenny Williamson scholars in the, in the coming decades will parse that one out for me. <laughs> but one humble Manhattan copywriter. No Hugo nominations. <laughs> None. Not even one. <laughs> so... Another <laughs> So another important factor here are the Valley and Sphinx temples. These are two temples at the feet of the Sphinx, believed to have been built at the same time. What can they tell us about when the Sphinx was built? And 
Are there any mysteries associated with them? Are there, Jenny? Are there? I'm going to read on and we'll find out. (laughs) Good idea. The Sphinx Temple is located right in front of the Sphinx, whereas the Valley Temple can be found in front of the Sphinx and just to its right, or south-southwest. Archaeologists agree that the blocks used to build these temples were quarried from the Sphinx enclosure at the same time the Sphinx was carved. They can tell because the layers of limestone in the blocks used to build these temples matches up precisely with the layers in the enclosure. Yeah, and this is not a fact that is up for contention. Even Robert Schock agrees that the Sphinx and Valley temples must have been built at the same time as the Sphinx. In fact, geologists have mapped blocks from the temples to precise layers and locations within the enclosure. According to their studies, the blocks used to build the Valley temple came from the layers that correspond to the upper part of the Sphinx's body, whereas the blocks used to build the Sphinx temple came from lower on the statue's body, just below chest height. Established archaeologists believe that these temples were built at the same time as the pyramids. And, you know, everyone believes that. Robert Schock agrees. So that means the Sphinx must have been built then, too. But Schock disputes that the Sphinx and Valley temples were built at the same time as the pyramids. You know, he thinks they're also 10,000 years old. He points out a number of things about these temples that are a little strange, a little off, and that may throw their traditional dates into dispute. So let's dig in. Okay, so first you have to understand how the Sphinx and Valley temples were constructed. These temples are made from core limestone blocks, gigantic blocks, that were covered over with slabs of rose-colored granite. They're both very striking. The core limestone blocks used to build the core of, of the buildings are massive. Some are as large as 150 tons, and that is extremely megalithic even for the ancient Egyptians. In the Great Pyramid, for example, the average weight of the blocks used to construct it is about 2.5 tons, and the massive megalithic blocks that line the passages inside weigh about 70 tons. In fact, the documentary Mystery of the Sphinx, narrated by Charlton Heston, tells us that there are no other monuments anywhere in Egypt that use blocks as large as those found in the Sphinx and Valley temples. I tried to track down how big blocks were in various monuments in ancient Egypt. I could not find that much information, so I cannot confirm or deny this, but that is what they told me in this documentary from 1993, narrated by Charlton Heston. In this very seminal documentary for you and your understanding of this subject matter. Middle school me ate this shit up. Oh, I can see. (laughs) It's very dubious. In Mystery of the Sphinx, an engineer who uses enormous cranes to lift the massive loads. Sorry, the massive loads. In the Mystery. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I I'm sweating so much that every part of me is running with water from my tits to my crack. Okay? That's what the Sphinx said 10,000 years ago. <laughs> The Sphinx was like, unbury me. And as soon as it was unburied, it was like, rebury me. No one needs to watch this. I'm covered in water from my tits to my crack. (laughs) My many, many cracks. All my crevices are moist. That is the pull quote. (laughs) That is the pull quote. (laughs) It's not because we're not keeping this conversation in. This is the best part. Best part of the whole episode. <laughs> All my crevices are moist. <laughs> in the mystery, no, he sounds so proper after I just shouted. All my crevices are moist. 
<laughs> Jen, we have to be, we are professional podcasters. We're professional. We headlined an intelligent speech, okay? Pull it together. We do not have a Hugo. We have to get it together. <laughs> In Mr. <laughs> I really want a Sphinx now that's sweating. That just says all my crevices are moist. <laughs> <laughs> so many crevices. All of them moist. All of them are moist. Anyway. In Mystery of the Sphinx, an engineer who uses enormous cranes to lift massive loads. (laughs) Massive loads. (laughs) Who wrote this episode? (laughs) It's the massive loads. (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote this episode? Are their crevices moist? (laughs) I just want to lick all the crevices of the Sphinx. (laughs) Is their layer cake moist? (laughs) Because people are licking them. <laughs> now, see, nobody's, That's why they're moist. Nobody's brought up thousands and thousands of years of people licking the Sphinx as a possibility for all that erosion. <laughs> Clearly nobody understands that the only way to erode a Sphinx is to lick it. Archaeologists have calculated that it would have taken 100 people three years continuously of licking the Sphinx to get it as eroded as it is today. Yes, like a Tootsie Roll pop. There's a wise owl looking at you going, keep going. (laughs) Not at the center yet. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. People continue to lick the Sphinx today. It continues to erode. It's a big problem. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has devolved quickly. (laughs) Real quick. 45% complete devolution. Devolution. What are we doing? I need another beer. Can you please get past the massive lows? No. <laughs> I think I need you to read it because I can't. I'll start with this perennial mystery because if I say massive lows yes. again, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> you know what time it is over at Jen's? It's like midnight. Twelve thirty-three, and I'm almost to the booze and berries. <laughs> She's almost to the booze and her berries. We got mm-hmm. some sphinx licking to do, Jen. <laughs> Do I have to read this paragraph because you can't say massive loads? I'll read it. Okay, do it. In Mystery of the Sphinx, an engineer who uses enormous cranes to lift massive loads was filmed saying he had absolutely no idea how the people of the time moved those blocks, those massive loads of blocks, from the Sphinx enclosure to their places in the temple walls. He wasn't sure he could do it with his enormous crane that lifts massive loads. In 1993. In 1993. I'm sorry. This this is a perennial mystery, by the way, how the Egyptians lifted and moved heavy blocks. There are a number of mainstream theories and a lot of woo-woo theories. The documentary has a very woo-woo digression where they talk about how maybe, maybe, the ancient Egyptians used sound waves to float the blocks into place and create the Sphinx and Valley temples. Jenny's middle school, the middle school version of her, just ate this shit right up. With a spoon. With a spoon. And the the non-middle school version of me, who is almost to her booze and berries, is like, yeah, this is still a step too far. She hasn't had enough booze and berries yet. <laughs> so, like we said... The temples were made of absolutely massive blocks of limestone, which was (laughs) massive loads. Massive loads. And this is very serious. It's a very serious episode. 
which was then faced over with granite. That's not unusual for Egyptian construction. The pyramids, for example, were sheathed with smooth white limestone that would have made all of them gleam white in the sun. It's not that weird that the rough limestone blocks from these temples were sheathed over in smooth pink granite like they were. What is weird is that the limestone blocks beneath the granite appear deeply weathered in a way that seems to have been caused by rain, just like the Sphinx, at least according to Shock. How did they get that weathered if the granite casings were placed there at the same time as construction? Shock shows us places in the documentary where the weathered undulations in the stone were cut back to accommodate the granite, and where the backs of the granite facing were carved to fit perfectly to the bulges and curves of weathered stone beneath. Hmm, curiouser and curiouser. This brings us to the repairs done to the Sphinx itself. People have been trying to preserve the Sphinx's body for millennia. There are visible repairs on the statue's body. Blocks in different styles, from the 20th century to the Roman era, various points in ancient Egyptian history, and even today. As part of his excavation of the Sphinx, Tutmos IV even built a wall around it to keep the sand out. The Sphinx is made, as we've said, of poor quality limestone that is very sensitive to wear and tear. Pieces of it are constantly flaking off and falling into the enclosure. It's a problem today, and it was a problem throughout the Sphinx's history. Perhaps the reason it still exists today is that there were extended, centuries-long periods where the statue was buried in sand, sometimes up to its neck. This may have done more to preserve the Sphinx than anything else. Or perhaps it was all that licking... If you're going to lick a sphinx, you have to understand some of it's going to flake off. I am sick in all my limbs and moist in all my crevices. (laughs) Moist in all my crevices. (laughs) (laughs) This is very serious, Chen. It's a serious, serious pseudoscientific theory. I mean, I feel like I'm giving this episode the amount of attention and respect it deserves. (laughs) Oh, you are. Perhaps the oldest evidence of repairs, quote-unquote, and I put that in quotes, however, is Tura-quality limestone at the base of the Sphinx around the back, forming a kind of casing. Tura limestone was limestone that came from the quarries of Tura near Cairo, Egypt. This was widely known to be the best quality limestone available in the Egyptian world. We don't know if the limestone casings here came from Tura, just that they were that high quality. These casings date from around the Old Kingdom, possibly from the time of Khafre himself. That's when the Sphinx was built, according to the established view. If the Sphinx was new during that time, why did it need repairs? Why? Hmm. In his documentary, Shock points out that the stone underneath the repairs is already heavily eroded. In fact, those Old Kingdom repairs are about three feet thick. Again, why would the Sphinx need such extensive repairs if it was new during that time? That is a legitimately good question, right? So we don't know exactly when these blocks were laid, but the Old Kingdom ended roughly around 300 years after Khafre died. In the documentary, Charlton Heston, we're quoting Charlton Heston, asks, quote, why did they repair the Sphinx only 300 years after it was built? This is the uh, lows to which we have sunk here on Ancient History Fangirl. (laughs) Season eight. (laughs) Bottom of the barrel. This is where we jump the shark. (laughs) And followed by Jenny's thoughts. And why did those repairs need to be so drastic? About three feet thick. I have so many thoughts about this. Like, I live in a country where things are super old. 
and have had a lot of repairs earlier than you'd think they would. There's a rebuttal to this rebuttal in the next paragraph. Okay, I just felt the need to say that. You're going to rebut yourself in the next paragraph is all I'm saying. Okay, but this was in my own words and the words of some booze and berries. So yes, we all know the Sphinx is made of low-quality limestone that erodes. But if it was eroding in that desert environment, at that rate, three feet every 300 years, that's a rate of one foot every 100 years. So that means, by now, if you believe the Sphinx was built in Khafre's time, it would have eroded 45 feet in 4,500 years. In other words, it would have completely disappeared by now. Hmm. Does that change your mind, Jen? I mean... No. Okay, Jen is still a tough nut to crack here. We're moving on to documentation. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Finally, there's the mystery of the Sphinx's documentation. The ancient Egyptians wrote a lot of things down on the walls of their tombs and temples, on papyrus scrolls, on pottery and curse tablets and other artifacts, but they wrote nothing down about the Sphinx. That is weird. Egyptian pharaohs, incidentally, did love to put their names on things. They festooned their temples, tombs, and monuments with their names, surrounded by cartouches, kind of like rectangles with rounded corners. That's how you know it's a pharaoh's name, because it's in a cartouche. But did Khafre put his name on the Sphinx? No! That's weird. If it was part of his funerary monument, he would have wanted his name on it. The pharaohs frequently carved their names on their funerary monuments because they believed, the pharaohs believed that as long as the dead person was remembered, they would live on in the afterlife. Writing the pharaoh's name on their monuments was one way to keep them alive after death because it would remind people of their existence. Okay, that, I, I get you. I see where you're going with this. So, why didn't Khafre put his name on the Sphinx? is a legitimate question we should all be asking ourselves. This is a thing I'm frequently just asking myself in silence while I'm waiting for the subway or something. Or a coffee. Or a bagel. Or whatever. Indeed. 
Another question is, why didn't Tutmos IV mention Khafre in the dream stele? Wouldn't Tutmos have known if Khafre built it? And wouldn't he have wanted to associate Khafre's name with his bid for power? You know, to shore up his legitimacy? It's not necessarily true that Tutmos would have known Khafre built the Sphinx. If there was serious societal upheaval between the Old Kingdom and Tutmos's time, and a thousand years is a long time, some of that history could have been lost. It's possible people didn't know much more than they do now. Maybe they knew less. And you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. There is, in fact, a fragment of Khafre's name on the Dream Stele. We think. Maybe. It's at the bottom, which is heavily eroded, and much of that area has been flaked off. So we don't actually know what the stele has to say about Khafre. It's a tantalizing clue. And it turns out that it's not really true that the Sphinx is mentioned nowhere in ancient Egyptian writing. It is mentioned somewhere, and it turns out that mention kind of backs up the Sphinx water erosion theory. This mention is found on an inscription known as the Inventory Stele. It was originally unearthed in the 1800s AD near the Sphinx. It lists 22 statues originally owned by a temple of Isis, and it says that Khufu didn't build the Sphinx. He just found it, much like Tutmos did. He restored the Sphinx and its ancient temples and then built his own pyramids nearby. It also claims that the temple of Isis that it's associated with was older than the pyramids, and that Khufu built it anew as part of his restoration project. Which brings us to the question of what temple exactly the stele is associated with. There is a temple of Isis on the Giza Plateau. It's near the Queen's Pyramid. But it's unclear to us whether this stele originally stood in that temple or was somewhere else. Yeah, I tried to find an answer to this somewhere and I couldn't find it. Maybe this is really obvious to archaeologists, but it wasn't to me a Manhattan copywriter. With no Hugo nomination. Keep rubbing it in my face, Jen. (laughs) So anyway, that inventory stele wasn't found in the Temple of Isis that actually exists in the Giza Plateau. So far as I know, it was found near the Sphinx. Was it originally associated with the Sphinx or Valley temples? Was one of those used as a temple of Isis at some point in history? Maybe it's lived for 10,000 years? I don't know. I haven't seen anyone discussing this theory, either because I'm so brilliant that I'm the only one who thought of it, or maybe because it's so bad shit that modern Egyptologists have not bothered with it. I honestly don't know at this point. That's how far down this rabbit hole I am. I have no idea. Well, you can't be that brilliant. You have no Hugo nomination. And have you started a cult based on your science fiction novels? I don't think so. Listen, I'm still working on it, okay? Yet. Yet. (laughs) Give me time. So the fact that I'm now circling the drain about my own batshit theories means that it is time for the established mainstream Egyptologists to to rebut. It's time to rebut. But how are you going to rebut this ancient stele from the Temple of Isis? Like, this is telling you. Everything you need to know, right? Are you convinced? Are you convinced? I mean... Maybe you should ask the booze and berries what they think. Booze and berries? I'm, lo- I'm reading them like tea leaves right now, which is about what this episode deserves. They say, unclear, drink again later. Oh, fair enough. Okay. So, <laughs> there are more facets to the Sphinx water erosion theory. This is a very deep rabbit hole. Rebuttals and rebuttals to the rebuttals have been flying back and forth for 30 years, you guys. But I think it's time to let, you know, actual archaeology have its say, rebut these claims. We rebut. Because 
There are answers to all of these claims. So let the rebuttals commence. I rebut. (laughs) While different people have embraced the Sphinx water erosion theory over the years, the main proponents were West and Shock. And the Egyptology community had two original prominent leaders who led the rebuttals at the time, Dr. Mark Lenner and Dr. Zahi Hawass. Both have been leading experts on the Sphinx and the Giza Plateau for decades. Mark Lenner is an American. He first became interested in ancient Egypt as a student in the 70s after reading the work of Edgar Cayce, a famous psychic, oh geez, who died in 1945. Casey, oh boy, was known to go into trances and have visions. And in one of those visions, oh boy, Jenny, I'm just reading ahead, guys. In one of those visions, he saw refugees from Atlantis burying their writings in a hall of records beneath the Sphinx. Casey predicted that this hall would be unearthed before the end of the 20th century. Jen, is it the end of the 20th, the 20th century as of yet? Atlantis is not real. There were no refugees. Are those the boozeberries talking or is it you talking? <laughs> it's me and the boozeberries together as friends. Are you saying that Edgar Casey was incorrect in his vision? No. So, as a student, Laner was fascinated by this theory that there was a hall of records underneath the Sphinx. He even became involved with the Edgar Casey Foundation and they were the ones who sent him on his first trip to Egypt. But when he went to the American University in Cairo and actually studied the monuments there, he realized that the evidence didn't back up Casey's visions. He became a prominent Egyptologist and rebutted shock in his original 1992 presentation. Zahi Hawass is a colleague of Lenner's. They went to school together and were friends. Hawass is an Egyptian archaeologist and has had a number of prominent positions related to antiquities in the Egyptian government, including Minister of State for Antiquities Affairs. At the time, Shock and West went public with their theory in the 90s. Hawass was the director general of the Giza Monuments and one of the world's leading Egyptologists. Yeah, and I think there's some sort of contract or agreement that he had that every documentary about Egyptian archaeology from a certain time had to include him because he's in a lot of documentaries, a lot of them. Like, he's very recognizable. If you see him in a documentary. So Hawass does have a problematic history. It has to do with his ties to the Mubarak government. I think some of it has to do with his relationship with other people in the Egyptology community. He's kind of known for high-handed behavior. He has been accused of saying some anti-Semitic things. I believe that he's denied saying those things. But it's hard not to include him in this episode because in the 90s, at the time, he and Lehner were the two lead archaeologists rebutting the water erosion theory. So I'm going to quote and also paraphrase things from both Lehner and Hawass, as well as other people in the next section here. So the core argument for the Sphinx water erosion theory is that the erosion on the Sphinx is water erosion from heavy rainfall. And rainfall wasn't heavy enough to cause that extensive erosion until you get back to maybe... I don't know, 5,000 B.C. at the latest, or maybe as early as 11,500 B.C., depending on how tight your tinfoil hat is on your head. Oh, very, very tight. It's like a swim cap. Zahi Awas has a lot to say about this so-called erosion. He points out that the Sphinx was carved from a single block of limestone. While the carving itself, knee-deep to Khafre's time, 
That block of limestone stood on the Giza Plateau for millennia and eons before then, easily back to 10,000 years or more, and it could have been exposed to the weather 10,000 years ago and picked up that water erosion then, before it was carved into the shape of the Sphinx. I mean, that is the simplest, truest answer I've ever heard on this podcast. Which, again, does not negate the work of the geologist. He said this block is that is 10,000 years old. It's just saying it wasn't carved 10,000 years ago. I mean, mind blown, but also easily answered. In fact, that's also quite possibly true for the entirety of the limestone on the Giza Plateau, including that found on the enclosure wall. Again, yes, yes, I agree. Water from rainfall could have sifted through the sand and eroded the limestone beneath creating those vertical fissures long before the enclosure, or even the Sphinx itself was carved out. Yeah, Hawass also addresses those repairs that were put in place during the Old Kingdom. According to Shock, it's weird that those repairs were there because they were supposedly put there when the Sphinx was originally carved, and that happened during Khafre's time. But according to Zahi Hawass, that wasn't repairs at all, but part of the original construction of the statue. The workers put those casings in place to model the body to look more like a lion body and correct erosion that had already been happening on the limestone before it was carved into that shape. Hawass points out that covering rough core stone with smooth outer casings was a really common building technique at the time. Builders did it with the pyramids, temples, and other monuments as well. At the time those monuments were built, it wasn't just a thing they did when they had to repair something. Yeah, it was essentially just how they did things it's how they smoothed over very rough stone that was like a core building block you know hang on hawass has more to say about the walls of the sphinx enclosure which like the sphinx are heavily eroded he says quote western shock perceive that the south and west walls of the sphinx ditch are eroded more at the top than at the bottom the effect they say of rainwater beating back a rock face that was originally vertical. But, looking at the eastern end of the south wall, where much of the original face is still preserved, it is clear that the ancient quarrymen cut the face at this slope in the first place. So, Hawass believes that the original Sphinx enclosure walls were not cut to be straight up and down, but at a slant. One of the linchpins of the Sphinx water erosion theory is that rainfall didn't occur on the Giza Plateau in enough volume to erode stone like the Sphinx is eroded prior to about 10,000 years ago. But that's since been thrown into doubt. Remember, all this information is from the 90s. Science has moved on in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's been like, what? About 30 years. Yeah, about 30 years. So an article came out in the Smithsonian Magazine in 2010 that discusses the research of two German climatologists. Rudolf Cooper and Stefan Kroplin. Performing radiocarbon dating on various archaeological sites, they've advanced the theory that the rainy period on the Sahara actually ended between 3500 and 1500 BC, later than most prevailing theories of the time. According to this research, the Sahara didn't go suddenly from wet to dry. It was a gradual process that took millennia, and there were cycles that went from monsoon rains to dry spells. Those cycles got longer and longer. Mark Leonard stated in the Smithsonian article that it was these cycles of wet and dry that really eroded the Sphinx. Quote, In Leonard's view of the patterns of erosion on the Sphinx, intermittent wet periods dissolved salt deposits in the limestone, 
which recrystallized on the surface, causing softer stone to crumble, while harder layers formed large flakes that would be blown away by desert winds. The Sphinx, Leonard says, was subjected to constant scouring during this transitional era of climate change. It's a theory in progress, says Leonard. If I'm right, this episode could represent a kind of tipping point between different climate states, from the wetter conditions of Khufu and Khafre's era to the much drier environment in the last centuries of the Old Kingdom. So the newer theory is that climate change was a gradual process, and the beginning of the Old Kingdom was much wetter than the end of it. So in that quote, Lander was talking about salt crystallizing on the surface of the Sphinx. So the Sphinx is just always salt encrusted, which makes me want to lick it more. Is that weird? Oh my goodness, I so want to lick that Sphinx. We just want to lick the Sphinx. That's what we're coming away with from this whole episode. See, Julius Caesar would be so jealous because we want to lick the Sphinx, but we don't want to lick him. Don't tell him we had this conversation. I don't want to, he- I just won't hear the end of it. I think he's currently watching Tiny Homes and that's where we leave him. Yelling about their lack of busts of him. Right? Six busts of Julius Caesar is the minimum. <laughs> <laughs> So, in that quote, Lehner was talking about salt crystallizing on the surface of the Sphinx, which caused erosion and caused me and Jan to want to lick the Sphinx. Remember, one thing that makes the Sphinx different from other monuments on the Giza Plateau is that it is still physically attached to the bedrock beneath it. That's not true of the pyramids. So, the water table in the bedrock can be drawn up through the body of the Sphinx via capillary action. Lehner's point is that this could have caused the Sphinx to erode more quickly than other monuments and also have a different erosion pattern. And this has to do with salt in the water crystallizing on the surface of the Sphinx and making the stone more brittle. This is a process called haloclasty. And it's not a new theory that this has propelled erosion on the Sphinx. In fact, in 1992, the Getty Conservation Institute published research about this in their newsletter. Quote, The gypsum and sodium chloride contained within the rock absorb moisture and dissolve at higher levels of humidity. When the humidity drops below those levels, the water evaporates and these salts crystallize. The environmental monitoring study indicates that this humidity cycle is occurring nearly every day. Continual salt crystallization, which has a destructive effect on the stone, would explain at least some of the deterioration of the sphinx. So Leonard also points out that the end of the Old Kingdom was marked by political instability and civil war. Aha! He's going to address what my big point was. I'm so happy. So, Leonard sees climate change as adding to that instability. Quote, The implication is that the Sphinx and the Pyramid's epic feats of engineering and architecture were built at the end of a special time of more dependable rainfall, when pharaohs could marshal labor forces on an epic scale. But then, over the centuries, the landscape dried out and the harvest grew more precarious. The pharaoh's central authority gradually weakened, allowing provincial officials to assert themselves, culminating in an era of civil war. So Leonard believes that the climate change that transitioned the Giza Plateau from wet to dry over millennia, culminating towards the end of the Old Kingdom, in fact contributed to the end of that kingdom itself. It helped cause that instability. In fact, there's a whole theory that something called the 4.2 kiloyear BP aridification event occurred in the 2200s BC. Simply put, it was theoretically the most severe drought to ever happen during human history. That we know of. 
This drought may have destabilized many ancient Bronze Age empires, including Egypt's Old Kingdom, the Indus Valley Civilization, the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia, and the Liangzhu culture in China. Did the Giza Plateau dry out then? Maybe. So another major objection that Egyptologists have to the Sphinx water erosion theory is this. If the Sphinx is so old that it was built 10,000 years ago, where is the evidence for the society that could support the building of such an incredible statue? In an article rebutting the water erosion theory, Dr. Zahi Hawa says, quote, If Egyptologists tend to ignore West and shock, this is because they almost completely ignore the evidence surrounding the Sphinx of an old kingdom society and argue that the monument must be the remnant of a much older civilization, otherwise unknown to archaeology. They do not explain how their lost civilization disappeared from the archaeological record, nor how the old kingdom society of Khufu, Khafre, and their cohorts is so abundantly represented in that record, nor do they explain what happened to this lost civilization during the thousands of years between the mysterious Sphinx builders and the old kingdom. This is perhaps one of the most commonly cited rebuttals to the Sphinx water erosion theory. And it makes a lot of sense. Building the Sphinx would have taken a massive commitment of time, resources, and manpower. Some estimates say it would have taken about 100 workers using stone and copper tools approximately three years to make the Sphinx. Where is the 10,000-year-old advanced society complex enough to support that many expert craftsmen? Let's be clear, we're not saying there was nobody living in Egypt or the surrounding area at this time. Science suggests that 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was lush and green, and people lived near lakes and rivers throughout the region, including around the Nile. This period is sometimes called the time of the Green Sahara. While cave paintings and artifacts exist from this time period, nothing suggests the existence of a complex, stratified society that would have been able to support building something like the Sphinx. Come to think of it, where are the support buildings from 10,000 years ago that the workers lived in while they built the Sphinx? We have that for the pyramids. In the past few decades, archaeologists led by Dr. Lehner unearthed a huge lost city. With streets and barracks and breweries and bakeries and all kinds of necessary things that would have supported maybe 20,000 workers at any given time. Not to mention a cemetery with maybe 6,000 bodies, most of them men who had suffered grievous injuries that they could have gotten on the work site. Where's all that from 10,000 years ago for the Sphinx builders? Such a good question. Like, I never would have thought about it, but now that you've told me that, I can't unsee it. And I'm like, yeah, no, I totally agree. So, we talked about the Inventory Stele, which is an ancient Egyptian inscription that makes a lot of claims about how Khufu didn't build the Sphinx. He merely found and restored it. And to be fair, this was the most convincing thing for me. Like, this was the bit where I almost put the hat on, Jenny. You had me. It's right above my head. I almost had you. Almost had you. You did. So let's delve into exactly how convincing that stele is. Archaeologists do not see this as an accurate account of history. It's more like our beloved Historia Augusta of ancient Egypt. And I mean, the number of times we use the Historia Augusta as a legitimate source in our podcast should tell you a little bit about the quality of work that we do here on Ancient History Fangirl. You know, you're always ragging on the Historia Augusta, but sometimes it's the only source and it does give you 
some things that maybe happened. Probably didn't, but maybe. It's the only one that mentions Hadrian's Wall. I mean, I'll give it that. (laughs) Exactly. Like, it is sometimes the only place where you get certain things mentioned. And it is darkly accurate about Hadrian's relationship with Antinous. There is also that. I mean, look, the Historia Augusta, a wizard did it. That's all I can say. Yeah. And look, we all love our historical wizards, right? Indeed. (laughs) So the inventory stelae dates to around 670 BC, about 1,860 years after Khafre's death. So just think about that. It's not super ancient as we thought it was. Well, it is ancient, but it it isn't that close to the time of Khafre's death. It's almost 2,000 years removed. Exactly. And it's telling you that the Sphinx is even older. It's 10,000 years old, but this is 2,000 years younger than Khafre. It's an early stele about the Sphinx water erosion theory. (laughs) That's what it is. Essentially, it is the earliest version of the water erosion theory. Right? (laughs) So this stele is full of inaccuracies. First off, it spells Khufu's name wrong. It calls Isis mistress of the pyramid, which is not a title that Isis has ever had anywhere else. And you would think that whoever wrote this would know that because they were priests of Isis. You would think that. Or priestesses, I don't know. Whoever wrote it should know what her titles are, right? You would think that. So the Isis temple in the Giza pyramid complex was built on top of the mortuary temple of Queen Hinutsen, third wife of Khufu, who was probably buried in one of the small pyramids at the foot of the Great Pyramid. So it's associated with Hanutsen, but the inventory stele refers to her wrong as the daughter of a king, which she probably wasn't, even though she was the queen consort. Just because somebody carved something on stone doesn't make it correct. Story of my life. (laughs) Archaeologists ask, if the inventory stele is so egregiously wrong about everything else it says, why should we believe it when it tells us that the Sphinx predates the pyramids? These days, Egyptologists believe that the inventory stele was created by local priests in an attempt to give the Isis temple an ancient, mystical history that it didn't actually have. This was common in this period of Egyptian history, when religious temples, shrines, and other sites had to fight for financial resources from the ruling class. The most revered, historic temples got the most resources. In other words, This was a scam. And you know, even in today's day and age, this is true, right? Like, the older something is, the more historic it is, the more stuff it has attached to it, the easier it is for it to find funding and resources. I kind of have to respect this ancient scam. I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't, but I do. I love a good scam. I also love a good ancient thing. So put those two together. I'm into it. It's an ancient world grift and I'm kind of here for it. Exactly. (laughs) An ancient world Tinder swindler, if you will. (laughs) He looks like the kind of guy who would lick a sphinx. I mean, realistically. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I hope his tongue gets stuck there. (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. So last of all, let's revisit the sphinx and valley temples, shall we? Those two temples built in conjunction with the Sphinx. The evidence is overwhelming that the Sphinx was built right at the same time as those temples. Even Shock agrees with this. So if we can date the temples, we can date the Sphinx, right? These temples are a little unusual and they have attracted their own share of pseudo-archaeological theories, including that they were also built 10,000 years ago. To summarize, the huge megalithic blocks used to build these temples 
are larger and on a grander scale than any building anywhere else in Egypt. The temples don't contain any carvings or other evidence connecting them to Khafre. The limestone underneath the granite cladding, which was placed in the Old Kingdom period, is just as weathered as the stone of the Sphinx. So archaeologists will tell you that actually there's plenty of evidence connecting these temples to the time of Khafre. Carvings and statues have been found in the temples that do date them to this time. In fact, the Valley Temple was believed to contain 23 statues of Khafre placed in niches throughout the temple, fragments of which have been found in the temple. 23 statues, Jenny! Like, Julius Caesar is having a boner over that. <laughs> this is well above the minimum of six. Khafre was not fucking around. Oh, yeah, this is not a tiny home anymore. So, when they excavated this site, archaeologists found a whole, unbroken, magnificent statue of Khafre seated on a lion throne, buried upside down beneath the floor. It's made of anorthosite gneiss. A striking, rippling, volcanic green stone that's exceptionally hard and that can only be found in a remote area of the Sahara Desert in Nubia, west of the Nile's second cataract. This statue was found buried in a pit under the floor of the Valley Temple, possibly to protect it from looting. The interesting thing is it's buried upside down, and burying it upside down is kind of like inverting. Like, to me, it's like, did the people have some problem with him that they wanted his monument buried upside down, his statue buried upside down? Was it buried to protect it from looting? Like, maybe it was buried in a hurry. Maybe that was the only way they could get it to fit. Hmm. Was it because people were disliked him so much that they wanted to, like, erase his memory, him, whatever? I mean, this is definitely both of our own tinfoil hat theories right now. Oh, yeah, my hat is now on. Now I'm making what I would say informed tinfoil hat guesses, but they're still tinfoil. As for whether the walls of the Sphinx and Valley Temples were weathered like the Sphinx under their rose granite cladding, like those giant megalithic blocks, there's the possibility that the cladding was installed later, not at the same time as construction. But also, Dr. Zahi Hawass says that the limestone underneath the cladding isn't weathered at all. Like Shock says, he says just Shock is wrong about that weathering. There are dueling papers about this. And I started to go down the rabbit hole about exactly how weathered those blocks are. And then I decided to stop because the science has moved on, kids. We now have a more conclusive way to date the Sphinx and Valley temples. In 2014, which again is almost 10 years ago. Think about that. That makes me feel so old. What is 10 years in geological time, really? <laughs> <laughs> An article was published in the Journal of Cultural Heritage entitled surface luminescence dating of some Egyptian monuments. The authors point out that one problem with techniques like radiocarbon dating is that they rely on organic materials, which is fine, sort of, if you're trying to date things like bone or wooden artifacts, but not great if you're trying to date stone. And that's because you can't date stone directly. You have to date materials associated with the stone artifact that are organic. And that can become a problem when either you can't find any, like with the Sphinx, or the artifact's association with the organic artifact isn't that well proven or dated. So like with the Sphinx, we don't have another artifact with organic material that we know is directly linked. Good. We broke that down. So luminescence dating allows scientists to date the stone itself and determine when stone blocks were dressed and cut. Scientists can measure how long ago minerals in rock 
were last exposed to daylight by measuring the amount of unstable electrons trapped in quartz, feldspar, and other crystal structures in stone. That's so cool, Jenny. I'm so nerding out. It's like they can tell you the last time these things were exposed to sunlight. Of course, this method of dating isn't perfect either. There is an uncertainty rate of roughly 4 to 5%. The false positive error rate of radiocarbon dating is roughly 10% approximately. So it is more accurate than carbon dating from what I can see. Anyway, when researchers tested both granite and limestone in the Sphinx and Valley temples, both came up with the same age, the 4th dynasty, Khafre's time, from roughly 2613 to 2494 BC. I mean, that kind of puts the nail in the coffin, doesn't it? It does leave room for the alternate theories of maybe Khufu or Jejefre built it, but not for the 10,000 years ago theory, right? The nail in the coffin of that theory was essentially the rock could be 10,000 years old, but the carving certainly isn't. Like, that's, that, that was it. That was like the first one. We could have stopped there, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I guess the only thing I needed rebutted was the, the inventory stelly. That's an easy one to rebut is the thing. It is an easy one to rebut. And I have to say, I love it with all of me. Like the inventory stelly is just fantastic. <laughs> it's a scam. <laughs> I love it so much. So there is one thing that it's really important to discuss before we close the book on this. Are we getting some aliens? We may be getting some aliens, yes. So growing up, I loved alternate fringe theories from ancient history. The more out there and paranormal, the better. I'm talking from like middle school to high school. I love this shit. I loved it. I absolutely devoured Von Donneken's Chariots of the Gods. I loved ancient aliens, all of that stuff. Loved it. And I want to just echo you, Jenny, because I loved fringe theories. and like grew up very religious. I also like... Love me some ghosts, some woo-woo theories. I'm here for it, right? That's something that's sort of in my DNA. We're the same age. So we grew up very similar in that regard. And I think it's super important, you know, to acknowledge that. Yeah. But one thing I've noticed as I've gotten older is that some alternative fringe theories about archaeology can be a little racist and paternalistic. Kind of boils down to how could these brown people have possibly built this thing? Maybe it was white people. Maybe it was aliens. I chose to cover this topic mainly because I had memories of being super fascinated by it in middle school. And I also thought in my naivete that the Sphinx water erosion theory wasn't one of those. Yes, it is saying that the Egyptians didn't build the Sphinx 4,500 years ago, but the same people could have been the ones to build it earlier, right? I get what you're saying here. Like, it wasn't these ancient Egyptians. It was even ancienter Egyptians. Well, Egypt didn't exist then, and I don't really know what the migration pattern was in the area, you know, all of that. But, like, theoretically, the same people could have built it just a lot earlier. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> totally. Like, I get that. But here's the thing. So there's this thing called cultural elitism where modern researchers look back on an ancient culture and say, there's no way these ancient people could have ever built this incredible thing. It is a bit insulting and paternalistic to that culture. And it's not a coincidence that people of color get this a lot about their ancient history, specifically from white people. Not saying that's always the case, but it frequently is in my experience. Which is deeply depressing and why it's important to sort of unpack these theories that you see all the time. And as soon as one person, especially an established scholar, 
says, there's no way these primitive peoples could have built this thing, some fringe theorist will come along with a tinfoil hat theory about aliens or Atlantis and how they must have built this thing. Because bringing in aliens and Atlantis is somehow more believable than believing that these people from this ancient culture actually could build incredible things. Unfortunately, the Sphinx water erosion theory fits this pattern perfectly. Remember when we talked about the history of the Sphinx water erosion theory and how John Anthony West, nominated for one Hugo, Manhattan copywriter, (laughs) came across the idea in the writings of another alternative Egyptologist, Rene Adolphe Schwaller de Lubix. De Lubix's full theory was that the Sphinx was built not by Egyptians, but, motherfucker, by refugees fleeing the destruction of Plato's metaphorical made-up Atlantis. The proposed date, 10,000 years ago, was specifically chosen to line up with the date Atlantis supposedly sank beneath the waves. Fuck my life. This has always been a conclusion in search of a supporting theory, which is kind of the opposite of science. It's 100% the opposite of science. We had the privilege to talk to Barry Strauss earlier this year. He was so fascinating. And one of the things he said that always stuck with me is that there's this fallacy that historians can make, which is like wanting something to work out a certain way and sort of trying to point the facts in that direction as opposed to interrogating the facts and seeing if your conclusion is actually accurate. That's what's happening here, right? Like, this is the Atlantis of it all. Exactly. When Robert Schock gave his presentation in 1992, he conveniently left out the Atlantis of it all. But Atlantis has always been at the core of the Sphinx water erosion theory. In fact, when Egyptologists ask where the advanced society is or was that could have built the Sphinx, where's the evidence of that? Water erosion enthusiasts often say it's under the sea. The people who built the Sphinx certainly weren't Africans. They came in from outside, from Atlantis. If you watch the documentary Mystery of the Sphinx, which you can get on YouTube, I will link in the show notes if you are curious, you'll find a lot of woo-woo stuff in there. The extended documentary is more than an hour and a half long. As we've said, it's narrated by Charlton Heston. Who's not at all problematic in the, at all. Not even slightly. And it doesn't just suggest that people from Atlantis built the Sphinx. It also makes the case that the Atlanteans came from Mars. We got both of them, Jenny. <laughs> Two for the price of one. Two cultural elitism tropes in there for the price of one. A different, wildly advanced, and entirely unknown ancient civilization that was possibly white. It's kind of coded white, right? And aliens. Gotta take a minute. Just take a minute. After everything I dragged you through. The thing was, there were some legitimately smart-sounding things you brought me through. To get to the aliens and the Atlantis of it all, right? Well, that's the problem. That is the problem with this theory and why it is so pernicious. It's because it sounds smart if you're a layperson like me and you. If you're just a humble Manhattan copywriter. With no Hugo nominations. (laughs) No Hugo nomination whatsoever. This sounds really smart and it's hard to parse through it. Yeah, and Shock has distanced himself from the more fringe stuff about The Martians in the documentary. This is a quote from his website, quote, Unfortunately, the original documentary has since been re-edited and expanded with all sorts of extraneous material, some of which I am not at all happy about. 
and is currently being marketed by UFO TV. It still contains the core material and is worth watching, but when you do so, please disregard the nonsense filler that was inserted into an otherwise great show. However, Shock still embraces the Atlantis theory, and he's been pretty open about believing that refugees from Atlantis or some other very early unknown advanced civilization may deserve the credit for the Sphinx. Some of his more current books involve how solar flares may have ended the last ice age and these early civilizations. So Jen, what are your thoughts on this? Where do you come down here? When we did the rehearsal for this episode, and we've actually stopped rehearsing as much because we've hit our flow and we don't need to do it as much as we we used to. However, Jenny said, I need to sit down with you and we need to read this episode. I need you to make sure that like you're getting everything I'm talking about and you ask me any questions you have. And the flow works and how I've how I've laid this out is 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 good. And we got to the end of this episode and that's why I said at the beginning, you need to listen. It blew my mind. Jenny and I all the time sit down as lay people and we have a story we're really interested in, some part of history that we maybe saw a documentary on or know a little bit about. And we go down these rabbit holes and we think we're going one way. And as a lay person, you can easily find a documentary like this on YouTube and start tumbling down this rabbit hole that started off real smart. And all of a sudden you're at Atlantis. It's really not difficult. And that's part of the reason that I asked for this to be the first episode in the series, because sometimes Jenny and I will do this research and all of a sudden hold our hands up and be like, okay, so I've just spent two weeks researching pseudo-archaeology. What do I do? I now have my own pseudo-archaeology theories about the Sphinx and Valley Temples or something. Help. I got to that point, you know? As lay people who are not historians, who don't always have access to sort of scholarly articles and the latest research, and who are just parsing things that are coming to us either through popular culture, through YouTube, through articles, it is difficult sometimes when the argument is convincing enough to understand the difference between what's real and what's pseudo-archaeology, especially when you hear about it on really big mainstream podcasts and news, because remember, the news does love pseudo-archaeology. There were articles about this in the New York Times, you know, like, and that's what makes it so hard to parse through this. Like, I decided to attack this as a layperson because I wanted to take that journey and I wanted to see how hard it was and where I would end up. And Jen, when I when we read it through the first time, she was like very stroppy about this and very resistant to it at first and was yelling, no, it's stupid. I was so aggressive about this. I did win her over to the water erosion theory for a minute and then I turned it around. It was kind of beautiful how that worked. I loved it. It was, and I was very stroppy about it because I came into it knowing that Shock had just been on Joe Rogan and having seen some arguments of modern archaeologists and Egyptologists on Twitter. So I knew what we were getting into was going to be pseudo and fringe. But as Jenny said, she won me over. There was this point where I was like, yeah, but what about that? That's the problem. The problem is that this theory isn't stupid. That's why it's lasted for 30 years. That's why it's so convincing to so many people. I mean, look, if you were an Egyptologist or an archaeologist, you're really educated in these things. You might just 
find it easy to dismiss it and say it's stupid. Or if you're somebody who already knows the ending, like Jen, you might find it easy to think it's stupid. But for lay people with no background in this, it's really hard to parse through this stuff. I mean, the arguments for and against look essentially the same from a layperson's perspective. The authors for both publish in the same peer-reviewed journals. They all have degrees after their names. If you're trying to figure this out by reading scholarly articles and you don't know who Robert Schock is, it's really hard to tell the difference between this and that geological analysis and who's right when they say that, like, the stones in the Sphinx and Valley temples are weathered to the nth degree, right? Like, you don't know. And the reality is the science of how these have been weathered is maybe not up for debate, right? Shock isn't debating how old the stones are or certain things are. The debate is more when it's been carved. Yeah. And I remember Jan was saying before, like, you need to check, you know, the background of everybody who's writing about this stuff. But even if you do that, if you're a layperson entering into this with no knowledge, even the established archaeologists have shady things in their past. Mark Lehner has ties to Edgar Cayce. Zahi Hawass has a lot of problematic stuff in his background that might make you want to just not listen to him at all. I came to ancient history through my love of stories and mythology. I didn't know until far too recently that Atlantis isn't actually a myth. It only appears in Plato and it's an allegory. Yeah, Liv Albert in Let's Talk About Myths Baby does a really great takedown of the Atlantis story. And we will link to her episodes on that in our show notes, too, because that's actually a really important component of this episode is is the background of the Atlantis story. That also has ties to white supremacy. So it's important to know that stuff. Yeah, and that's kind of how I became really fascinated in different aspects of ancient history was like these sort of myths. And as I've said many times, I'm a mythology nerd. So I've always been fascinated with things like ancient volcanic eruptions, like the Thera eruption and Akrotiri and what's left. And to me, the history behind it is far more interesting. But it's easy for a person to come into this just like Leonard did through something that's a little weird and fringe and then find themselves saying, well, that's nonsense. And actually understanding the history. I mean, I think for me, sadly, I'm sorry to my middle school self. This is just pure cultural elitism at its core. So obviously, I don't believe it. I think I I played a good role in the first half. No one on the podcast believes it. (laughs) I mean, it's extremely disappointing to my middle school self. But I will say that there are other mysteries here that I discovered while researching this that I actually find even more interesting. Sometimes when I'm investigating an ancient mystery, as I've been doing for this season, the mystery isn't what I think it is. I think the more intriguing mystery here is this. How did people in Khafre's time conceive of and talk about the Sphinx? Why were the Sphinx and Valley Temples never finished? Was the Sphinx's cult abandoned before it even started? I want the answers to those questions. Could the reason the Sphinx vanishes in the documentation be tied to the upheaval that went on at the end of the Old Kingdom? Maybe. And that's the first thing I thought when you told me this. And, you know, and that's what I'm more interested in, right? I'm more interested in what was going on on the ground with the people. That actually means we don't see this. There's some indication that the Sphinx itself was never completed as intended. And this is a quote from the Smithsonian article that we quoted earlier. It's called Uncovering Secrets of the Sphinx by Evan Haddingham. Quote, it seems Khafre's vision was never fully realized. There are signs the Sphinx was unfinished. In 1978, in a corner of the statue's quarry, Hoas and Leonard found three stone blocks, abandoned as laborers were dragging them to build the Sphinx temple. The north edge of the ditch surrounding the Sphinx contained segments of bedrock 
that are only partially quarried. Here, the archaeologists also found the remnants of a workman's luncheon toolkit, fragments of a beer or water jar and stone hammers. Apparently, the workers walked off the job. What made these workers walk off? Political unrest? Upheaval? Violence? Did the pay simply stop coming? What was it like to dedicate a huge part of your life and limb to a monument that literally keeps the pharaoh alive in the afterlife after death and then simply walk off the job and leave him hanging in the afterlife? We may never know. The Sphinx certainly isn't telling us. That's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. We have no idea, but we'll figure it out. In the meantime, find us at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Insta and Facebook. Sign up to our Patreon if you'd like to support the podcast. It's patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. And Jenny, we have some new patrons to thank this week. We do. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. So thank you so much to Jay Lell. AP. Just AP. Lila Hertz. Linda Liu. And Jennifer Mosier. Thank you so much. Patrons, you're the reason we're still able to continue doing this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for your support, and we will see you next week. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.